Lord, we thank you that you purify us by your word. Lord, that you purify us, first of all, Lord, by your son dying on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And you've given the right to whoever puts their faith in him to become sons and daughters of God, to call ourselves that, to be called that in your, in your presence and in your sight, and to be able to own that. Lord, you give us that, that right by faith. And so we thank you. And Lord, we pray that if there be any in here this morning that, that aren't, uh, that haven't received that by faith and aren't walking in that, or that this, before they walk out this morning, that that might be the case, that they might confess you as Lord, they might surrender and submit to you and just and be able to walk in that. And so also, Lord, we, we praise you and we thank you that your word purifies and it cleanses, and makes us pure. It's what you told your disciples. And so as we sit under the teaching and the reading of your word this morning, we just pray that we might be purified and cleansed and filled up and encouraged, convicted, challenged, if need be, whatever you intend for your word to accomplish this morning. We just want to surrender to that. And then give us the strength by your grace to be able to walk in joyful obedience to your word. We just pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. Happy to be here with you today. My name is Brock Ashley, if any of you don't know me. And I'm filling in for Pastor Mike this morning. He's off away in Colorado at his friend Jeff Kramer's church. So he's actually teaching out there today. So he's Rocky Mountain High, Colorado. That's Pastor Mike. He's gone. So if, uh, if any of you, uh, for whatever reason, don't enjoy the services today, good news, next week it will be much, much better. All right. Well, today we're going to be taking a departure from the book of Romans. We've been in for some months now. We're actually going to be looking at the letter to the Philippians. And where we're going to find ourselves is one verse in particular, uh, and I've entitled the message today to be confident. That's verse Six. But since we haven't been in the book of Philippians at all, I thought we'd do a little bit of a background just so we can catch up and, and uh, have an understanding of where the church is at, where the Apostle Paul's at at this time, and just kind of catch us up to speed. So to begin, this letter or epistle was written in 62 AD by the Apostle Paul while he was held uh, in Roman guard under uh, waiting to see Caesar Nero. And this is one of four what are called the prison epistles. And that would be the letter to the Ephesians, the letter to the Colossians, the letter to Philemon, and this letter to the Philippian church. So Paul wrote these while he was in captivity under guard, and then they were taken by four different men to be delivered to these different churches and one to a, per a person in Philemon. So then background of the church at Philippi. So this church was actually planted about 12 years earlier, around 50 AD, by the Apostle Paul. And we can see what that church plant looks like if you want to turn with me to Acts chapter 16. So as you make your way, and we'll just kind of do a broad uh, overview of this, to Acts chapter 16, this is during the uh, very beginnings of the early portions of the second uh, missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. And what it tells us is Paul uh, desired, he wanted to go into Asia, which is now known as modern-day Turkey. But to them, this was Asia Minor. So he desired to go into the, uh, this area of Asia, planting churches. But instead, what we read here is that the Holy Spirit, uh, right around verse 7, uh, did not permit them. It forbid them to go into the area of Asia. Now, we don't know exactly how it forbid them to go, but what we believe historically is that Paul actually became very sick. He became very ill, and he wasn't able to travel. 
So while he's very sick and not able to travel, he receives a vision, it says in verse 9, of a man from Macedonia that stood and pleaded, and pleaded with him to come over to Macedonia and help us. So uh, one other interesting note that kind of backs up this idea that Paul became very sick is if you'll notice, you Bible students out there, that the writer of the book of Acts, uh, his uh, writing is very much in the third person. He's talking about they and them. But then in verse 10, we see a transition. He says, and now after he had seen that vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia. So you see it changes from third person to first person there. And we know that the writer of the book of Acts is actually Dr. Luke. So now we see Dr. Luke joining this team that's headed out on this missionary journey, which backs up this idea that Paul had become very sick, so he needed Dr. Luke's medical attention. So they are on their way then to Macedonia, and on their way they head to the area of Philippi, the city of Philippi, which is the most prominent uh, city in this area of Macedonia. And it also mentions for us in the text that it's a Roman colony. Now that's important to note because as a Roman colony, it means that they have all the rights of any other city in uh, Rome or in Italy itself. So it's considered actually Italian soil. It's considered uh, you have citizenship just like you would if you were in Italy. Uh, you can buy and sell ground. You, you uh, are considered a citizen. So it's important to note, and that the reason Paul started there is because it was the most important city in the area. And they began searching out for a, a first a synagogue or a congregation that they could speak to of Jews. So Paul would always, when he's planning a church, take uh, the news of the gospel to the Jewish people first and then to the Gentiles. With the idea being that the Jews have already had the Hebrew text for all these years, so it should be easier to get them to see that Jesus was the Messiah as he went through the Old Testament. But what he found was there was no congregation, as it were. In order to have a Jewish church, they would actually need to have at least 10 males, 13 years or older, that are practicing in this city. And what he found was none. So instead, they end up uh, down by the river, and they come across a group of women who have gathered there together, and they're praying, and they're singing hymns. And one woman in particular, in verse 14, a lady named Lydia, it says, from an area called Thyatira, so she's not even from Philippi, uh, heard them and she became a believer. Now we know that Lydia was a seller of purple. Purple at that time was very expensive. So as, as a seller of purple, she was an entrepreneur. So she was a very successful business lady from the area of Thyatira. And not only did she uh, become a believer in Jesus after hearing the Apostle Paul, but her and her entire family. She actually persuaded Paul to come back to her house and speak to her entire household. So we find our first believers for the new church in Philippi. So moving on, the gang then is traveling through the city, and they are followed around by, it says, a certain slave girl possessed, I'm in verse 16, possessed with a spirit of divination. And what she was saying behind them in verse 17 is, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. She's yelling this out behind them as they're walking through the area, which doesn't seem like a bad thing, except she didn't stop saying it for three days straight. They're walking around. She just keeps barking this out. So it says, but Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. So immediately we see the spirit leave her and she's delivered. And we now have the second uh, church member in this new church at Philippi. So 
The issue, though, with uh, Paul and Silas delivering this young lady from this demon is that the men who were her masters were making quite a bit of money from her being a fortune teller. So these guys became upset because a fortune teller that can't tell your fortune uh, isn't worth a whole lot. So they grabbed Paul and Silas and they had them thrown into the Philippian jail. And what it tells us then in verse uh, 22 in this area, that they tore their clothes, they beat them with rods, they laid many stripes, which is where they would actually whip their back until it tore the flesh off their back, and they uh, secured their legs or fastened their feet in stocks. Now I've read this several times, and it wasn't until this time going through it that I actually looked at what it meant to fasten your feet in stocks. I don't know if any of you know this, but what they would do is they would actually take your legs and they would spread them to the point where it was very uncomfortable, and then they would fasten them in that position together. So you were sitting on your bottom and you couldn't move with your feet spread apart. You can imagine the kind of hip and back pain that that would create. So what Paul and Silas were doing is what all of us would do if we'd just been beaten and had our feet put in stocks. They were singing and praising the Lord. That's what you guys would do, right? So as they're singing hymns, and praising the Lord, it says in verse 26 that suddenly a great earthquake happened in the jail, and their bonds were broken, the shackles fall off their legs, the doors of the prison fly open. Great end of the story, right? They're able to escape. But instead, what we read is that the Philippian jailer, as he woke up from the earthquake, apparently he was a little sleepy, he was taking a nap on the job, he draws his sword not to fight and keep the prisoners in, but instead to kill himself. Because, as I mentioned before, this being a Roman colony, they fall under the rules of Rome, which say that if you're a prison guard and you lose your prisoners, you get to take on their sentence. So he knows that this is not going to go well for him, that all these guys are probably gone, and I'm going to have to take on every death sentence from every one of them. So instead, he's just going to end it himself. So what Paul says in verse 28 because they hadn't left, was do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Now this man has to be shocked at this point. He comes running in, and he falls down in verse 30, in front of Paul and Silas, and he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So this very man that had just beaten Paul, he, I'm sure he was part of the group that was beating Paul and Silas, now has had a complete 180 degree turn, and he's wanting Paul to come to his house and save him to clean him up, to, to see him restored, and his entire house, it says, was baptized. So we see the beginnings of this church at Philippi bring together, as I put up on the screen, a very unlikely trio for a church plant. So if you think this is an unlikely trio, I'd like you to take a look around. Take a look around at some of the folks that you're gathered with here today. These are not people that you would most likely uh, probably go out with uh, to the pasta house to have dinner, Right? You come out with us one time, you probably will never go out to dinner with us again. We'll end that right there. And yet, you see the way God assembles and puts his church together, right? He brings all people from different walks and, and experiences and, and understandings together, and he, and he creates his church. It's a beautiful thing. So Paul is writing this letter to this Philippian church that he loved and cared about so much. Uh, for one, he planted it as we've just uh, talked about. But then also, this church, more than any of the others that I can tell in history, went out of their way to bless Paul. They would send him gifts and uh, love offerings. Uh, four to five times they would send him offerings, and not out of their great wealth. The Corinthian church had a lot of money. This Philippian church was a poor area. Even to this day, if you 
research this area of northern Greece. It's got like 27% unemployment I looked at this morning. I mean, it's a very poor area. But they gave to Paul out of their heart. They loved him and cared for him, and he felt very passionately about them as well. And so what he writes to them in verse 6 of Philippians is this. And being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So what Paul is trying to do is give them this, this edification to build them up. This letter is really a lot about him building this group of people up to have confidence, to have confidence in the work that they're doing, that they're doing a good thing out there, and to keep it up. But what the enemy wants to do, what Satan wants to do to us, and what he's trying to attack this church in, is he wants us to be, instead of having confidence, he wants us to be fractured by our past, frustrated in our present, and fearful of our future. And so Paul, in this short little verse, is going to cover all of those things for us this morning. Let's begin by being fractured by our past. Now I put up here on the screen that our past leaves us feeling broken, but what Paul is saying is that this is the groundwork for good works that God has begun. So if you think back in, into the pain that you've got going on in your past, that this is actually the groundwork that Jesus is going to use to do something tremendous. So what Paul writes to the uh, Philippian church, if you skip with me to the right just a little bit in chapter 3, he's talking about his past and his background. And what he says in verse 4 talking about his resume, if you want to call it that, is though I might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he might have confidence in the flesh, I more so. So Paul's bragging. He's like, listen, if you think you're confident, check this out. I've been circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness, which is the law, blameless. Like, if you want to show your resume and you want to talk about all the things you've done, I've done it even better than you have. I've been a Hebrew of the Hebrews, right? He's followed the law to the letter, and yet it still left him in a place of brokenness. He had no healing. And if we look at where Paul is first mentioned in Scripture, I shared with the first service that the law of first mentions in the Bible, uh, a lot of Bible scholars think that the first time a person or a thing is mentioned it carries an extra importance. So if that's the case, we see the first mention of Paul in Acts chapter 7, and we're going to look at verse 57 here in just a minute. But where Paul is at personally at this point is a Stephen, who's one of the disciples of Jesus, is shared in front of the Sanhedrin and in front of a large group of Jewish men at the synagogue. He's basically laid out the gospel message, and he's done it in dramatic fashion. He started from the very time that they were the nation of Israel and how they didn't want to listen to Moses and he moved into the way they treated the prophets, how they killed all, every prophet was either beaten or killed. And then all the, way to, all the way to the time of Jesus where they crucify the Lord. So as he shared all these things and he's tried to convince them and, and get them to understand what Jesus brought and what he meant to them and to the world, they, instead of embracing this message, in verse 57, and then they cried with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran at him in one accord, this being Stephen. And they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul, who would later become the apostle Paul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God, saying, Lord Jesus, 
receive my spirit. And he knelt down and he cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he said this, he fell asleep. So the first mention we see of the Apostle Paul is witnessing, and in fact, condoning the stoning death of Stephen. So you can imagine the impact that this must have had. And what, I, what I'm going to propose to you this morning is this was a turning point for Paul. That it wasn't on the road to Damascus necessarily, while it was impactful when he sees Jesus on that road to Damascus and he's, he sees the bright light and he's blinded and he's converted. But that conversion process actually started way back in his fractured past. And the same thing's true for us. Our conversion doesn't start the day we accept Jesus. It actually starts way back in our past as we are broken and we're beat up and we're fractured and we've got all these lumps we see him actually doing a work within that. And what Paul writes in Romans 8.28, and we covered this a few weeks ago on Sunday, he says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. In all things, even in the brokenness, even in the pain, he's not calling us to be fractured, but instead he's calling us to be resurrected out of our past. So then, let's move to the present tense. If we go back to our verse, if I can find it, back to Philippians. Now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it. Now, I put up here on the screen that some days, I don't know about you, but it it just seems like the covers weigh 100 pounds. Like you just can't get yourself out of bed. You've got this to-do list a mile long, all these things you want to get done in your day, yet it feels like you're running in quicksand. I just can't get anything done, and I'm so frustrated. But what Paul is writing here to them is that he who had begun this good work will complete it. And if you look at the Greek, you could also translate that, will make perfect. So in this process, as we think we're not getting anything done, and we're hard on ourselves, and we're frustrated with ourselves, do you understand that as each day goes on, he's making you perfect? He's working perfection into your life. I mean, if you want to see perfection, you got this guy right here. Take a look. Okay. Well, tough crowd today. So let's go back to Paul. How about that? So look with me in verse 12 of Philippians 1, just a little bit to the right. But I wanted you to know, brethren, that these things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard, to all the rest, that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord have become confident by my chains and are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So what Paul's saying, remembering where he's at, he's sitting in jail writing a letter, which could be a little bit frustrating if you think about his present state. But instead, what he's saying is, listen, these things which have happened have only helped to further the gospel. God is actually using this as a way to, to preach to people. I'm able to write these letters and encourage you, and the, and the gospel's going forth. So in Romans, uh, in the fifth chapter of Romans, I'll go there and read about our favorite thing, and that is tribulations. Everybody loves a good tribulation. What Paul writes there is in verse 3, and not, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. 
And what does that hope spell out? Well, in verse 5, he says, Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So what he's saying here is that all these tribulations and all these trials, what they're really producing in us is, is a, a, a quiet confidence, a hope that we have, not in man, not in anything I can do, but in something he's doing in me. And instead of being frustrated by our present, what Jesus is calling us to is to be rested in our present. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, I put it up on the screen. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. That's the spot he wants us to work out of. Not from a place of frustration, but from a place of rest. So how then do we look towards our future? I put up here on the screen that we're uh, oftentimes we can be fearful of our future. And it, from Paul's standpoint, he's sitting in jail. He's waiting to see Caesar Nero. And one of two things is going to happen. He's either going to be released or he's going to be beheaded. There's not going to be any in-between for Paul. And as a Roman citizen, he wouldn't be crucified like Peter was. He would, in fact, some years later, be beheaded by Caesar Nero. Not at this trial, but at his next. That was his future from a fleshly standpoint. But Paul knew something that those people didn't. And that can be found in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. In the words of Jesus, as he's writing a letter to the seven churches, he's writing this to the church at Smyrna, but it applies to Paul and it applies to us. In Revelation 2, verse 10, he says, Do not fear any of those things which, are about, which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. But be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. You see, the ultimate reward is the crown of life. That's what we have to look forward to. That's what Paul knew, that no matter what they did to him, he's looking forward to the time where he receives the crown of life. And we won't go there, but I'll just reference it in Acts 9.16 as Paul is just coming into his own in his ministry and things are being revealed to him, what the Lord actually tells him in, in chapter 9, verse 16 of the book of Acts is, let me show you all the ways you're going to have to suffer for me. <laughs> so the Lord actually lays out his future and shows him all the different ways. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he talks about being beaten with rods, being whipped, being shipwrecked, being stoned, maybe to death. And, and all these things are going to take place. And yet for Paul... Instead, the way he chooses to view it is in, first, in, is in Philippians uh, 9, or excuse me, Philippians 1, verse 20. If you start halfway through that verse, he says, And Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live on in, my, in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose I cannot tell, for I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, that I know that I shall remain and continue with you uh, all for your progress and joy of faith, that, rejoicing, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. So what Paul is saying is, I've got these two things I can weigh out. To live is Christ. To live means I get to see the gospel expanded and further, and I get to speak to you and work with you and talk to you. But to die, hey, 
That's even better. So he's sitting here with a win-win situation where most people would look and go, at any moment you could be beheaded. He's going, listen, I'm a winner either way. So I put this up on the screen that our view of the future changes how we live in the present. So if you find yourself frustrated by where you're at, think about how you view the future. Do you view it from the lens of receiving the crown of life someday? It changes things for us. So lastly, I put on this slide that not all messages uh, start the same. And in the last uh, year and a half now, I've been asked to do this. Uh, Most of the time it's been on Wednesday nights where we've been in a specific book and a specific place where we've got sections of scripture I can can go to and know that that's that's the spot I'm going to speak about. But on Sundays, uh, Pastor Mike, whether it's uh, out of love or just to mess with me, I don't know, he says, you can just speak on anything you want. Just pick a verse and, and just kind of go with it. And most of the time, God has been gracious. This has been eight or ten times now, and he's given me things, you know, weeks in advance I've been able to think about and ponder on. But uh, two weeks leading up to this morning, I had nothing. I mean, zero. I didn't have an idea. I didn't have a thought. It was nothing at all. And so I had an opportunity uh, to go to uh, what's a hermitage. It's a Catholic-owned uh, area called uh, Visions of Peace. It's up by Crystal City, and I put a picture of it on the top left. I went with a group of guys, and it, it's kind of like a, a basement cut out in a, in a hillside with a little room and a bathroom, and it's, it's very quaint and small but quiet and peaceful, and just an opportunity to pray and think about things. And, and uh, when I went there two weeks ago, I was pretty worn out. So We've had a lot going on in our lives, and uh, my wife and I were conversing on text, and she's sharing with me some of the things that, that are on her heart, and I just, you know, found myself on my knees, just, Lord, show me something. Anything I can share with her to make her feel better, if you give me something for the message in a couple weeks, that would sure be great. But, you know, I was mostly praying for her. So at midnight, it was actually 12.34 p.m., or 12.34 a.m. is what the clock said. I remember it being one, two, three, four. I woke up, and what uh, I felt was, have confidence. He who has begun a great thing in you will be faithful. So with everything we've been going through, I thought, wow, that's pretty amazing. I sure hope that's in the Bible. So (laughs) it was, turns out. Not that exact, you know, that exact verse, but it was pretty close. And so it got me uh, to thinking. It got me to thinking about what the Lord has done uh, in my life, what the Lord has done in the tapestry that he weaves. And you think about your life, that's really what it is, right? He's, he's weaving together all these different relationships and experiences and, and, and just certain spots that we, that we hit. And, and I think of it like a, like a tapestry, but at the same time, God reveals markers sometimes. Like we get a certain points in time where we can go back to and go, I remember that happening there. And I think he does that because I have short-term memory loss. I don't know. I, but I really, I think it's because we can just see his faithfulness, even when I'm not faithful. So for me, where it really started was with a testimony. It started uh, right here on a Wednesday night, May the 4th, 2016, was a marker. Jason Samples had come up to me a couple weeks before, and he'd asked me if I would share my testimony. So I was uh, not that reluctant, only because God had been working on us for a while. We'd been in Farmington about eight months. We'd been coming to Parkland Chapel about six months. And through this, uh, him you know, basically beating things out of me and, 
and sin fallen away, and, and he had revealed to me that I was going to have to get up and speak at some point in time. So lo and behold, Jason comes to me and he asks me and I accept. And so I come up in front of you all and I talk about how we got to Farmington. I explain, you know, my background being raised in church, but how, like Daniel Messiah talked about last week, I was a nominal Christian. I didn't really follow any of the things I knew. Um, and so I shared those things. I shared my struggles with alcohol. I shared my relationship issues that my wife and I had. It really was an opening time for me to just get it all out there. And what you see when you share your testimony, let me just take a sidebar. When you share the things that have happened in your past, no matter how broken you think it is, it's amazing how much healing takes place. That those things that bind us and hold us back and we feel like, boy, if anybody knew that about me, it's so much better if you just get it out there. Just let it rip. And if you want to know something about me, I'll just tell you. Here's how it went right there. The power that the, that the enemy has on you is released. So that was May the 4th of 2016. And the next day, May the 5th, I know I'm a math genius that the next day was May the 5th, it was my daughter's birthday. It was a significance there. And we were getting ready to take our family on a camping trip for her birthday up to the city. So uh, I'm busy getting the camper ready. I put the picture up there. I'm, I'm you know, headed out to the vehicle. I'm getting things loaded in the camper. And my wife is a minimalist. I mean, she barely packs anything at all. So on my 157th trip to the camper, she has literally managed to pack everything you could ever imagine into this poor little thing. Uh, I, I'm out there, and I'm doing my thing, and I feel this heaviness, this weight. And I know you're looking at me like, yeah, you're looking a little heavy. It's the blue lights. See, it's these new blue lights is the reason. No, there's this heaviness. Uh, I couldn't explain it other than to say it was the Holy Spirit. Like it had entered, it was uh, on, it was pushing me down, and I, I actually found myself down on the floor of the camper. And as I'm on my knees, and I've got my hands up, I just said, Lord, I know you're here. Whatever you would have me do, I'll do it. Wherever you'd have me go, I'll go. I don't, I'm just crying out to you right now, like, whatever it is. And so what he whispered in my ear was, feed my sheep. Okay, I got it, I got it. And he said it again, feed my sheep. And I felt the pressure even more feed my sheep. He said it five or six times in my ear, I think because I'm thick-headed. I don't get it the first time or the second or the third. He said it about five times, and then finally it went away. He let me up, and before I was able to get out of the camper that day, he told me one other thing. He said, in two years, everything's going to change, and you better be ready to move. Like, wow, okay, that's pretty powerful. I, I think that was the Lord speaking, but I'm not sure. So uh, I get out. I must have looked like a zombie, I'm sure, after all this had taken place. And, and we get loaded up in the truck, and we head up to the city. We've got the camper with our 8,000 pounds of things in it, and we're headed up to the city. And I explained this to my wife. I said, this is, you know, this is what happened. Like, I think this is going to sound crazy. I think I've been called into ministry, of all things. And, and the truth of the matter is, I'd never even read all the way through the Bible. Like, I attended church my whole life. I'd never read this thing. I mean, I just read little pieces and parts that were on the wall of the church. So, you know, I felt like he, he told me to, to be ready. So I started to pour through the scriptures. I began to listen to as much Bible teaching as I could listen to. I mean, hundreds of hours of it. Whatever I could do to, to get ready. He told me to get ready, I better get ready. And so 
as time went on, I was able to have opportunities to sit up here with you on Wednesdays and speak, which is pretty amazing. Because if you would have told me that three years ago, I would have said you need to take the Bob Marley CD out of your CD player and put down whatever you've been passing around because you are high. <laughs> I'm not going to be up here talking in front of people about Jesus. And yet, here I am, right? So in April of 2018, to fast forward a little bit, we, uh, Angela had actually received a call from Vanessa Calvert, who said that there were a couple kids in our church that are in foster care. And would you please pray for these children, that somebody would step up, uh, their parents' rights have been terminated, they're looking for a forever home, and would you please pray about these kids? And so we did. We committed it to prayer. Well, we, we did it faithfully every morning. And uh, lo and behold, to our surprise, God revealed that we were the parents <laughs> of these two kids, which I thought was a little crazy. So I'm like, you know, we're already a little wacky. We got four kids. But then you go from being a little bit kooky to you taking the train to crazy town when you have six kids. Like, you just don't, you don't see much of that these days. And my biggest issue with it, honestly, as I, as I look back, was that everything we had in our lives would fit in this nice, you know, pretty little package that we could say, that's, that's ours right there, that's ours, isn't that special? But this didn't fit in that pretty little package anymore, right? It, it, it actually blew up outside the package. I had to get a whole new van package out there, if you see that big monstrosity. But it was, it was outside of our comfort zone, right? So the first weekend of May in 2018, actually May the 4th, we met with uh, the kid's caseworker, Debbie, and she started the process for us to formally adopt two kids. Two years, and everything changed. Not at all like what I thought it was going to. I had this entirely different thing in my head of what he was going to do, and yet this was it to the day, so that we would know, oh, look out, be confident. Back, boop. Let's get back to this. I was about to make my big point. It was all the hand-waving I was doing. So two years to the day, as he weaves all these different things through our lives, he's faithful to continue with the good works that he'd started. And then, wouldn't you know it, when he says, be ready to move, I thought he was going to send us to Zambia or someplace. I'm like, I don't know where the Lord's going to send us. He sent us about eight miles away. <laughs> we just moved two weeks ago. So we were, we were ready, I guess. Oh, we weren't that ready. But my point is, for us to understand that as the Lord is doing these things in our lives, that what we're really drawn back to is this, to be confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He's not looking for you to do a thing. He's not looking for you to insert yourself anywhere. He's actually the one that's going to complete it. Do you understand? This isn't, this isn't a, a homework assignment for us to do. This is us simply being faithful. So if you're in a spot where you're fractured by your past, what he really wants out of us is to be resurrected by our past. If you're in a spot where you're frustrated by your present, he wants us to be rested in our present. Or if you're in a place where you're fearful of your future, what he's telling us is he wants you to be reassured of your future. That being confident of this very thing, he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So Father, 
thank you for a message that you gave, Lord. And uh, so oftentimes it seems I'm never quite sure if these messages are for me or if they're for others, but I have a sense, Lord, that in this room today there are people in these very spots, that they are fractured by their past, not sure how anybody could ever get past it. Lord, that they are frustrated in their present, that the, that the daily grind has taken its toll, Lord, that it's too hard, it feels like, to do it on our own, when in fact it is too hard to do it on our own. Lord, that the future is fearful, not knowing what's going to happen. So, Lord, I pray that you would give us resurrection, you would give us rest, and you would give us reassurance. That you would remind us, Lord, that we're redeemed only by you, only by your blood. So, Father, if there are folks out there today in these spots, please draw them to you. Please deliver them. Thank you for what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Bless you this week. If you're around Wednesdays, we'd love to have you out for the book of Ecclesiastes. If not, we'll see you next Sunday. And if you need any prayer or like to talk, we'll be up front. So will Jared. Thanks.